Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American. Born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the First Lebanon War in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. In this episode, I will take a tour of the Middle East narrative in relation to the October 7th horrific barbaric attack by Hamas. October 7th was a watershed event for Israel, the Arab world, and the Middle East at large. Israel will never be the same nor will the Arab world. So first let's understand simple numbers, Middle Eastern numbers. The Arabs make up roughly 440 million people in the Middle East, spread among 22 states. Those states belong to the Arab League. In the Arab League, 96% are Muslim, 3% are Christian Arabs, and 1% are considered other. The Jews make up about 7 million, almost all of which are Israelis living in Israel. In the Middle East Arab world, namely among the civilian population, support for Hamas actions on October 7th are no less than massive. The support encapsulates almost all walks of life in the Arab world. So let's start our tour of the Middle East narratives. Ironically, the biggest and strongest enemy of Israel is not Arab. It is Persian. And yes, I am speaking of Iran. Iran and Israel are arch enemies. So what is the Iranian narrative? You may be in for surprise when I tell you that Iran was the second Muslim-majority nation after Turkey to officially recognize Israel in 1948 when Israel was established. In the 1950s, the Shah of Iran enabled Israel to establish a de facto embassy in Tehran, and eventually Israel and Iran exchanged ambassadors in the 1970s. Trade ties grew, and Iran became a major oil provider for Israel. An oil pipeline was established aimed at sending Iranian oil to Israel and then on to Europe. Tehran and Tel Aviv also had extensive military and security cooperation, but it was largely kept under wraps to avoid provoking the Arab nations in the region. So what happened? Well, the Iranian revolution happened. In 1979, the Shah was overthrown in a revolution, and a new Islamic Republic of Iran was established. Just to remind you, the Iranian rebels under the Ayatollah Khomeini, took American diplomats hostage in the U.S. Embassy. The Americans were held hostage for 444 days. The Ayatollah Khomeini brought about a new worldview that predominantly championed Islam and argued for standing up to arrogant world powers and their regional allies, who would oppress others, including oppressed Palestinians, to serve their own interests. In Iran, Israel became known as a little Satan, and the United States, the Great Satan. Iran cut off all ties with Israel, and the Israeli embassy in Tehran was transformed into the Palestinian embassy. The Ayatollah Khomeini pushed against framing the Palestinian issue from being an Arab nationalist cause to it an Islamic cause. This is a very important difference, since the new branding of the conflict was to be Islam against the little Satan, Israel, and a result also against the big Satan, the United States. This was to also brand Iran, the non-Arab Persian Iran, to lead the cause dear to the heart of almost all Arabs and many world Muslims. Currently, Iran supports 
what's called the Resistance Access, which is a network of political and armed groups in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. All these, of course, support the Muslim-Palestinian cause and view Israel as an evil enemy. Iran and Israel have been engaged in a long series of attacks on each other's interests within and outside their soils, which both countries, for the most part, publicly deny. This was known as a shadow war that today is totally illuminated, no longer in the shadows. So, if this is indeed the case, then why doesn't Iran take real action against Israel? Look, they are encouraging the proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, as well as the Houthis in Yemen, to strike at Israel. But these are limited strikes that have not, as of yet, turned into an all-out war. Hamas itself voiced several times their disappointment with these measured actions, or if you want, inactions, of Iran and its proxies. Answering the Hamas disappointment, as well as saving face among the Middle Eastern Muslims, Iran's state-run media constantly post articles and voice interviews reflecting the official narrative that presents Israel as weak, battered, and defeated. They even claim Hamas is winning. They also constantly threaten to destroy Tel Aviv. Why? It's simple. This rhetoric helps Iran justify the reason they are not actively participating in the fighting. On the one hand, they lead the resistance front. But on the other hand, they do not want a direct confrontation with Israel and perhaps one with the United States. So they activate their proxies in a calculated fashion, allowing only limited fighting, and mainly they do a lot of talking. There's little expectation that Iran will change the strategy throughout the entire duration of the current war. But that too remains to be seen. Having said all of that, the Iranian population, many of which hates their regime with a passion, many of which have risen up through the years in an attempt to rid themselves of the Iranian regime, that same population does not buy into the idea of the Muslim conflict with a little and big Satan. They do not see Israel as their enemy. Another non-Arab country speaking terribly ill of Israel, using contemptuous hatred, is Turkey. And this is mainly coming from their Muslim Brotherhood ideology backer, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. President Erdogan, in recent press conference, said the following. They used to speak ill of Hitler. What difference do you have from Hitler? They are going to make us miss Hitler. This Netanyahu doing any less than Hitler did? He is not. And he ended by saying, he, Netanyahu, is richer than Hitler. He gets support from the West. Personally, I'm no fan of Netanyahu, nor am I a fan of any of the Israeli leadership that is responsible for a colossal failure of October 7th. In my opinion, they all must go. But compare Netanyahu to Hitler? Really? And this coming from the Turkish president who has spewed anti-Semitism for years in many of his speeches? A man that has invaded Syria with the aim of butchering the Kurds? That arrests any journalists that question his policies? Okay, so what is Turkey's narrative? First, realize that Turkish narrative is run solely by President Erdogan. As I said, Erdogan has expressed many times anti-Semitic rhetoric. But it goes deeper, much deeper than just anti-Semitism. Erdogan describes the conflict in the Middle East in civilization terms. In his words, a clash between the Crusader and the Crescent. To Erdogan, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict reveals a civilizational rift between Islam and the West. Erdogan's leaves no doubt where Turkey stands, of course, at the Crescent. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has long been the centerpiece of Turkey's foreign policy. Erdogan believes that restoring the glory days of his country's imperial past is his destiny. He would like to see Turkey emerge to the past glory of the Ottoman Empire, and he, Erdogan, being the new emperor. Interestingly, 
the Turkish public has always favored the Palestinians, but has opted for neutrality and staying out of the Middle East conflict. But Erdogan has built a new narrative that Turkish involvement with the region is an unavoidable necessity for its future great power position. He has rebranded Turkey as the leader of those dispossessed, the downtrodden. It is Turkey's responsibility to defend the meek of the Muslim world. This fits in perfectly with the clash of civilizations, the Crusader and the Crescent. Ironically, Israel and the Jews are categorized as part of the Crusaders, though the Jews were butchered by the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. Turkey's narrative is extremely anti-Israel, but they too, like Iran, do not suggest expanding the conflict by putting boots on the ground. So again, a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. As we continue our tour of the Middle East narrative, let's take a look at the pragmatic Arab countries. Countries like Egypt and Jordan, both of which have peace treaties with Israel. Often these countries are described as moderate Arab countries. I refuse to use the term moderate for them. No country in which being gay is a crime punished by imprisonment, or that people voicing opposition to the regime simply disappear. For example, between May of 2020 and August of 2022, Egypt was cited to have the most enforced disappearance of people than any other country in the world. There are many more examples, but you get the point. If you research it, you'll understand how it is completely antithetical to the word moderate. So we'll call them pragmatic. And let's start with Egypt. And here, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that Egypt and Israel have maintained a peace treaty since the late 1970s. That's almost 50 years. A cold peace, but nonetheless peace. That in itself is an achievement in the Middle East. The bad news is that according to a survey taken only four years ago, 13% of Egyptians support diplomatic recognition of Israel. Only 13%. While 85% oppose it. Anti-Israel incitement is prevalent in the Egyptian media, which is state-controlled. The incitement is even more prevalent at the universities. And I want to give you an example. Egypt El-Zahar University, a university with a half a million students, Compare that to the largest university in America, I believe it is Texas A&M, with a student population of just over 73,000. Again, El Azhar University, one half a million students, funded by the Egyptian government, also stands as the leading Muslim university in the world, and hence a role model. On October 17th, just 10 days after the Hamas brutal attack on Israel, the El Azhar University issued a religious statement, a fatwa, and I quote, permitting the killing of Israeli civilians. These Israelis are not worth being called civilians. The university also declared, and I quote again, the Zionist enemy enjoys eating the meat and drinking the blood of Palestinians. Furthermore, they denied October 7th, saying it is a fake Zionist propaganda. About a week later, the statements were taken down, probably as a result of the Egyptian government intervention. So, we Israel have cold peace with the government of Egypt, but no peace with the people of Egypt. Egypt, like other pragmatic Arab countries, such as Jordan and Saudi Arabia, play a game. Politically, they want and need a relationship with Israel. But they also need Israel as a Western-type enemy so that their population feels an external threat justifying their dictatorships, defending them from evil. It is both fascinating and extremely disturbing to learn of what Arab civilians residing in these pragmatic Arab countries believe about the Holocaust. Consistent research shows the following. Over 60% of Arabs in these countries either believe the Holocaust is a myth or greatly exaggerated. Only 22% of Arab Muslims in the entire Middle East believe that the facts about the Holocaust are actually accurate. 
Again, an overwhelming majority believe anywhere from complete denial of the Holocaust or that the numbers of the murdered Jews are inflated, exaggerated, etc. In the Arab media, Holocaust denial is widespread. I would call it an epidemic. Just one example from one of the most politically moderate Arab states, Bahrain, which is a friend of Israel. The newspaper in Bahrain called Akhbar el-Khalish stated the following, What the Palestinians have endured in the past 75 years is a Holocaust of their own, surpassing Zionist narratives and legends of the Jewish Holocaust, rendering the Palestinian Holocaust 1,000 times stronger. Look, I was never good at math. But at 1,000 times more than the Holocaust? That adds up to 6 billion. That makes 75% of the world population. Okay, back to Egypt. Why is it that only 13% of Egyptians support diplomatic ties with Israel? I mean, we've had a peace treaty for almost 50 years. Maybe it is due to a very disturbing attempt of vilification of a plot which the Jews plan on taking over the world. I'm serious. It's called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And what are they? What do they say? So again, a little context. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a forged document that claims to reveal a Jewish plot to take over the world. It was published in Russia in 1905 by the Tsar's secret police. The protocols state that the Jews will use weapons to achieve control over the world. It claims that the Jews brought about the French Revolution, liberalism, socialism, communism, and anarchy in order to weaken European society. It continues to state that Jews control the price of gold and have the power to evoke economic crisis. The Jews rule the media, create religion and tribal feuds, and destroy cities. Once the Jews gain world power, they will demand the total obedience to a Jewish king. And again, you get the point. In the Arab world, the protocols are translated, commented upon, published, and promoted by famous Arab intellectuals, politicians, and professors. They introduce the protocols as an authentic document and as absolutely essential in explaining world affairs. The Jews' responsibility for every evil on earth is, rather, a very common, academic, and centrist worldview in Arab nations. In the Arab translation of the protocols, most editions include the following introductory blurb, and again I'm quoting, Oh, you may not stop halfway, my dear Arab, as it is your duty to know most certainly what and who is international jury, working towards the devastation of Christianity, Islam, and all of civilization. Do not be deceived by what you have known until now about Zionism in Israel. It is important for you to know the international jury that is behind the scenes and that has performed its criminal deeds for 20 centuries. Zionists in Israel are nothing but their facade. And then the introductory blurb ends with a call, read these protocols. But for the masses, the protocols are not easy reading. So Arab countries have dumped it down for the masses. For example, in Egypt, a production of a Ramadan-time soap opera named Night Without a Horse was produced for the less educated masses in the Arab world. In no less than 41 episodes, the Egyptian soap opera brought the myth of Jewish aspiration to take over the world into the living rooms of the Arab world in prime time slot after the evening news. The plot takes place in 1932 in Egypt. Fifteen years beforehand, British Foreign Minister Lord Balfour declared the Jews' right to a national homeland in Israel. As a result, a large wave of immigration of thousands of Jews to the land of Israel begins. In the plot, an Egyptian journalist named Muhammad Hafiz discovers a copy of the protocols supported by the British, French, and even the Ottoman imperialists. Hafiz also discovers that five people who knew of the protocols and tried to expose them were murdered by the Jews. 
the British who discovered Hafez knows about the protocols, hunt him down, and he is forced to hide. On a side note, the United States government pressure for this heinously anti-Semitic soap opera not to be aired. But it was denied. Why would the Egyptian government allow the series? Egypt is a third world country with extreme poverty and potential for societal unrest that could lead to an explosion of rebellion against the dictatorial leadership. For dictators, the oldest trick in the book is the creation of an external enemy in order to unite the populace. To do this, dictators persuade their populace of a global threat, a threat to humanity at large and to the Arab culture and society specifically. These are ideal grounds to prevent their Arab citizens from looking for solutions to drastic, homemade daily issues of survival. An external enemy has always worked for dictators. If there isn't one, no problem, make it up, as is clearly the case in pushing the conspiracy of the Jewish takeover of the world. Thus far, it's been working well for Egypt. Now let's take a look at Jordan. Jordan has the longest border with Israel. It too, like Egypt, has a peace treaty with Israel, going on 30 years now. Jordan faces a tough internal predicament navigating between its majority Palestinian population, which constantly exerts political pressure to act with hostility towards Israel, and its ruling Hashemite minority. The Hashemites are a Bedouin tribe, a ruling aristocracy of which King Abdullah is from. They try to manage Jordan with a policy of broader strategic and global interests. One of the Jordanians' biggest fears is what is called the alternative homeland. This is an idea which has arisen several times among certain smaller circles in Israel and elsewhere. According to this idea, the Palestinians' real homeland is Jordan. This is mainly due to the fact that the majority of Jordanians are indeed Palestinians. The Jordanian government does its utmost to play this down. In the official government census, the Jordanian numbers their Palestinian population around 2.2 million out of around 10 million. The facts are different. They are very different. The Palestinian population in Jordan is well over 50%. Well over. It is actually between 70 to 80% Palestinian Jordanian. As far as King Abdullah is concerned, everyone, other than the newly Syrian refugees and some Palestinians, are Jordanians. He's done much to integrate his Palestinian majority, including marrying and making his queen, the Palestinian Rania El Abdallah. Fearing being labeled home of the Palestinians, Jordan is considered one of the biggest and most insistent supporters of the two-state solution, a step Jordan believes is essential to its own survival. But Jordan has many issues. It suffers from an economic crisis, rising unemployment, growing criticism of the king, and controversy over intended reforms. The Hashemite kingdom is simmering, and King Abdullah II is apparently facing the biggest crisis of his over two-decade rule. Jordan is fearful, and rightfully so. Now, a few words about narratives as used as a tool of war. Hamas uses their narrative as a significant tool of war. Hamas makes every attempt to vilify Israel using disinformation and fully intends to dominate the narrative. Hamas is adept at information warfare. From the very first moment Hamas began its attack on October 7th, a parallel operation went forward on social media. Hamas live-streamed its onslaught and coordinated disinformation from its allies and supporters to spread its messages. Much of what went out was indeed pure fake news. Edited videos of mislabeled events from other places or complete fabrications. Hamas made extensive use of Telegram, a platform with no content moderation. Videos have been doctored or created out of nothing, 
footage from video games and the Syrian civil war have been posted to show a purported military engagement between Israel and Hamas. Fake images show soccer star Ronaldo holding a Palestinian flag, Israeli prime minister hospitalized, and much more fake. There's no end to the fake documents, fake statistics, fake recordings of fabricated events, military operations, and fake casualties. Propaganda groups are distorting historical records and undermining credible and news reporting to try to inflame emotions. Israel and other sources have tried to counter the disinformation, but the volume is so high and the coordinated surge across different platforms so powerful that the disinformation has quickly achieved its goal of inflaming world opinion. The global community and the global Islamic community, already sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, has been galvanized by the Hamas narrative which aims to garner sympathy, attract funding, and mobilize those who believe the cause is just. Democracies, like Israel, struggle to tell the true facts, but democracies fighting outright lies battle this with one hand tied behind their backs. You know what? Maybe even two hands tied behind our backs. Okay, so now we come to the general Palestinian narrative and the Israeli narrative. Now, on a personal note, between 2002 and 2006, I was an emissary, an Israel emissary in Minnesota. I did a lot of teaching, educating, debates, radio and TV interviews, etc. I remember that once I attended a debate at the University of Minnesota regarding the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. The moderator was a UN diplomat, at the time well known, named Tardiel Larson. He began and said to the audience, you're about to hear two vastly different narratives about the exact same story. He could not have been more correct. Before I dive into the two narratives, a little context about narratives in general. The study of narratives is considered a mushy, flexible, academic term, far removed from the hard-headed realities of creating concrete agreements. Narratives assume that there are truths beyond objective realities. In fact, in this context, the historical truth is less important in peacemaking than what the two societies believed to have happened. Both parties, including the majority of the populations and most of their leadership, generally believe in the truth of their own narrative and in that sense discredit the other narrative. In the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when reduced to its essential elements, there are only two master narratives. So let's start with the Palestinian narrative. The Palestinian narrative illustrates a people unjustly deprived of their land by invaders, colonialists, non-natives, etc. For the Palestinians, the humiliation of 1948 from the Nakba, the tragedy which brought about the establishment of Israel, and the 1967 Six-Day War haunts them. They claim to have lost everything and that no one in the world seems to care, least of all Israel, which officially denies their rights. The Palestinian narrative further believes that Israel wants to rid the land of all Palestinians, as they often use the words ethnic cleansing and genocide. More moderate Palestinians, or I should say more pragmatic Palestinians, may not use the term genocide, but they echo the opinion that Israel aims at making them subjects without rights. The Israeli narrative, on the other hand, demonstrates a justified right for the land. One, the Jews originated in this land and have been continually living here, in the land of Israel, for centuries. Many Jews never left the land, and those that did move didn't go far. They lived for centuries next door in the Middle East that was not divided into countries, but rather empires. Furthermore, Jews that were exiled, dispossessed, many generations before, many of which ended up in Europe, have the full right to return to their home. 
Many Israelis wholeheartedly believe that Palestinians would be satisfied only by the destruction of Israel. Therefore, there's nothing Israelis can do to bring about peace without committing national suicide. So the Palestinians will probably never let go of the concept that Israel is built on land that they believe they once owned and worked, and that most of which was taken from them by force. And Israelis will never cease to maintain their claim of cultural, religious, historical, and biological connection to the land of Israel. And so now comes the tough question. Can there ever be a bridging of the two narratives? October 7th and support for it among the overwhelming majority of Palestinians have brought us to the very lowest point, perhaps since the start of the conflict. So my next words will sound utopian. But in the famous words of Israeli Prime Minister, the first Israeli Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. So, what needs to happen? First, the first thing that needs to happen is an acknowledgement of both sides to one another. This means respecting the other's belief, even if it logically impinges on your own. I want to say that Israel has done so several times in the past. Israel signed the Declaration of the Principles, that was the Oslo Agreement, in 1993, not only recognizing the Palestinian Liberation Organization, but also recognizes the existence of the Palestinians as a people. Israeli textbooks have, to a degree, begun to take notes of Palestinian suffering. I remember helping my girls study history when they were in high school. I was surprised to see the word Nakba, again the Palestinian tragedy of Israel's establishment, in their textbooks when reading about Israel's independence. The mainstream of the Israeli historical professions have accepted significant aspects of the Palestinian narrative, especially involving the events of 1948, without, of course, accepting the traditional Palestinian conclusion that Israel is illegitimate and should not exist. The second thing that needs to happen is that acceptance that the Jews are a people, the Jews are a nation. The Arabs and Muslims in general call themselves an Ummah, a nation. The Ummah, or Muslim community, is a group of people from diverse backgrounds, ancestry, locations, and nationalities. They are a community without borders, yet united in a very real way. Though separated by distance and often constrained by borders, they are united. They are one nation or community united under the guidance of one God. In the Muslim holy book, the Quran, 2352, it reads, This Ummah of yours is one Ummah, and I am your Lord and Cherisher. The same Semitic word, Ummah, was first coined in Hebrew. Ummah is Am. The Jews, or Am Israel, the people of Israel, have been in existence for about 3,800 years. Jews, a name given to the Jewish people from the origins of the tribe of Judah, are a people of Semitic origin, an ethnic, religious, and national group, originating from, again, the tribes of Israel, also known as the Hebrews. The Jews lived in the land of Israel already from the end of the second millennium BC. Jewish ethnicity, nationalism, culture, and religion are related to each other. The Arab narrative doesn't yet accept the fact that the Jews are indeed a people, a nation. Third, there must be an acceptance of the history of the Jews in the Middle East and the fact that Jews always, always lived in the Middle East and specifically in the land of Israel. And fourth, we need a re-education for the next generation on both sides. How? Well, Israelis will need to educate that not all the Palestinians are Hamas, and that all, not all Palestinians want us eliminated. This will be tough after October 7th, but time, perhaps, 
will start the healing process. Some Arab states started this process of acceptance of the Jews. Too little thus far, but something. In May of 2020, the United Arab Emirates aired a TV series, a soap opera. The show portrays Jews and Muslims living together in peace and even features a romance between a Jewish woman and a Muslim man. The show is called Um Choran, meaning the mother of Aaron, portrays a Jewish community in the Arab Gulf area at the time Israel was founded. Understand, this was a breakthrough, showing the local population that Jews lived in the Middle East. They are not foreign invaders. An additional TV series aired by the Saudis also wanted to re-educate the population, urging closer ties with Israel. It was called Exit 7. In one clip, two characters debate the Palestinian situation, with one defending them and the other saying he would be happy to do business with Israel and accusing the Palestinians of being ungrateful to Saudi Arabia, the Saudi aid, and saying they would attack the country if they could. In other words, the Saudis promoting Israel as a business partner while literally cursing the Palestinians. Now, these are only two examples. The amount of examples vilifying Israel and the Jewish people are immense. So we still are very far from finding common ground among the two narratives, and further from peace becoming a reality. But I'll end with a repeat of Ben-Gurion's quote, which I must say I wholeheartedly agree with. In Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all podcast media sources, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.